0: Thank you for joining us for the online service of Coyote Baptist Church. It's, uh, it's a joy to be able to open God's Word and to uh, study it and learn from it together. Uh, I learned just as much going through this. I hope uh, that you do learn, but I learned equally, if not more. So um, you are greatly appreciated. We're gonna, we are in a study through the book of Romans We're calling the study not ashamed. Um, That's based on a statement that the Apostle Paul, who wrote the letter, makes early on in verse in chapter one. He says that he's not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God unto salvation. the Jew first and also to the Gentiles, and uh, that breakdown is is significant because it's one that he comes back to throughout much of this letter that he wrote to the church in Rome. Um, Today we're going to be looking, we'll call the message Law and Order, and I hope that will make sense as... um, Paul references the fact that so often Jews trust in the law. They look to the law. They seek to live by the law. And uh, in doing so, their life is ordered by the law. And while Gentiles, as he describes in the second half of chapter 1, are all over the map, but that even in their uh, not having the law, scripture, the word of God, there is a sense within them that can look even just at nature and creation and see a sense of order, a sense of a creator. So let's, uh, let's read our passage. We're going to start in chapter 2, verse 12. It's a fairly long passage, so hang with us. Um, we'll read through the end of the chapter. So Romans 2, starting in verse 12. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law For circumcision, indeed, is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision, but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God." Now, that's a lot. And it's not only a lot, it's a, it's a, it's a big chunk of Scripture to, to carry in one set, setting, but it is uh, what I would consider a, a somewhat difficult passage. Not difficult in the sense of whether or not what is written is true, it's part, of, it's part of the canon of Scripture. It's true. It's the Word of God. All Scripture is God-breathed, we know. Um, I, I think it's difficult for a couple of reasons. One, the English translation, uh, while I, I just read out of the English Standard Version, is faithful to the Greek text. Um, the translation itself... Um, doesn't help a lot in terms of making this understandable and easy to grasp. (coughs) Excuse me. But it's also difficult, I think, because of what it says and how Paul intertwines his case that he is making both to Jew and Gentile and how he goes back and forth and back and forth and back and forth Really making a very similar argument throughout the passage, but it's sometimes hard to kind of pull the strings apart and look, hold them up and look at them as they might be to understand what Paul is doing. Um, you might need to 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 uh, uh, to, be, to remember what's going on, what his goal is. I mentioned uh, earlier that he is making a case for the good news of Jesus Christ and the fact that it is the gospel that shows us, teaches us, tells us how one is found and made right with God. And so that's in chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. And then he immediately in chapter 1, verse 18 begins to show us how no man is right with God. Therefore, this is why we need the truth, the good news of Jesus Christ is because we a few weeks ago referenced Job's question of how can a man be found right before God, it's a great question. It's not only a question that could have been asked some forty-five hundred years ago. It's a question that could be asked today. How can any man be found right before the Lord? And so, Paul—that's that's Paul's purpose in um, as he as he takes us through what in our Bibles are uh, through the just past the middle of chapter three. He is exposing. In chapter 1, the unrighteousness of humanity, specifically the Gentile world, but even the religious world, the Jew, in our case, the Christian, can look at this and we see what he describes in in chapter 1, we see it in our day, in our time. We look at it and go, how relevant is this? Then, um, as we looked last time, starting in chapter 2, he's going to turn the spotlight on the person that kind of views themselves as morally superior. They read in chapter 1 and go, well, that's not me. And now, starting in our passage today, he's going to not only contrast the Gentile and the Jew, but he's going to really narrow in on the Jew. And, um, and so I, th- I think the connection, if you are a Christian and what would be considered a devout Christian, a church-going Christian, there is much to learn for us in what he says to the first century devout Jew He's going to focus on circumcision and the law, whereas we might focus on um, being faithful to the body, to the local church, and uh, to the markers, the symbols of our faith. So, all right, a, a, a lot, a lot to be said. Let's uh, let's break this down, and I want to do I want to do just that in in. Looking at these opening few verses and um, seeing how he delineates between the Jew and the Gentile, you'll notice <laughs> he says in verse 12, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. So you have these two groups you have Jews. And you have Gentiles. Jews have the law. Um, he's going to say in the beginning of chapter 3, that's a good thing. Never forget that, that even though he's going he's to kind of um, maybe look like he's taking Jews to the woodshed, he's going to come back and, and you read in chapter 3, is there an advantage in being a Jew? Is there an advantage of the great symbolism of of Judaism, at least for men, and that's circumcision? And his response is going to be absolutely in every way. And he's going to come back to that later in the letter and talk about the benefits that the Jews have had. Um, They've got the law. They hear the law and... Some even do the law, live by the law. And then when you look at the Gentiles, these people don't have the law. They they, they never had the law. They don't know the law. God didn't give them the law. Both Both, though, have sinned. Both will be judged. And if that judgment finds them... Vacuous, empty, um, disconnected from Jesus Christ, they will perish. The Jew will be judged by the law. The Gentile will not be judged by the law, but will still, if they don't have Christ, will perish apart from the law. In other words, God's not going to hold, God's not going to hold the Gentile. responsible for living by the law when he never gave them the law. We're going to talk about that. We're going to dig a little deeper into that momentarily. Uh, Both will be judged based on the revelation that they have received. And just, again, the Jew by the law, the Gentile by what they know to be true. All right? I'd like to say a word uh, about judgment. There are a couple of verses in here that speak to judgment, and um, I think part of what ma- makes this um, a sobering, a challenging passage of Scripture is because it makes statements that especially for an evangelical Christian, born-again believer, uh, might be kind of cause prickles on the back of your neck. It just, it might make you a little uncomfortable. We we, we, we referenced verse 6 last week, and we're going to read it again. So I just, if you're, I hope your Bibles are still open. I encourage you to keep them open. Verse 6, and then down in verse 13, we read, He, that's God, will render to each one according to his works. Then verse 13, for it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Now, both of these are referencing um, the judgment of God. When each individual stands before the Lord, uh, as we just talked about the fact the Gentile will stand before God and um, will not be responsible for living. If they don't have Scripture, they don't know Scripture, will not be judged, predicated on Scripture. What a, it, it, it makes one ask the question, what about the person halfway across the, the planet who has never heard of Jesus Christ, has never seen, much less read, a Bible what and how are they going to be judged by God, right? And the answer of that, to that question is, they are going to be judged based on how they responded to the revelation that they did have. Remember back in chapter 1, uh, in verse 19, Paul writes, for what can be known about God is plain to them right? Now, who is them? Men and women, people. Wherever you live, no matter what you know about Scripture or don't know about Scripture, there are certain things that are about God that is plain to see. Why? Because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived Ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. So God's not going to judge anybody based on something that they never heard about, right? God's going to look at them and say, well, this is, let's, let's, let's look at what you did know and how you dealt with that. And and the reality is, as Paul begins that passage in Romans one in verse eighteen, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That's what will condemn the Gentile, is that though they had the revelation, the general revelation. That there's a creator and there is a God. In fact, in this passage, Paul is going to talk about those that out of that sense of revelation and out of that sense of, yes, there's a creator, there's a God, there are certain aspects of the law that even though they'd never read the law, there's just parts of morality that they connected with, not because it was some kind of supernatural connection, But they can just look and see that some things are known. Murder is wrong. Stealing is wrong. How how, how does almost every culture know that? Because there's this sense that there there is a creator and there are things that we can know about the creator. But for every Gentile, for every person that, has been aware or refuses to acknowledge the presence of a Creator. It is their suppression of the truth. It is the fact that they have rebelled against the Creator that will condemn them. If you've been with us each week, you might remember a couple of weeks ago, I read a quote from from um, C.S. Lewis, who writes about one of the agonies of rejection. God at the judgment is that God does not hold people responsible for something that they never knew. He, in essence, says, this is what you wanted, this is what you live for, now you get exactly what you wanted. That is the hideousness of being judged by your own works, okay? Um... Now, that's the Gentile. For the Jew, they will be judged by the law. God blessed them. The law is a blessing. He gave it to Moses. Moses gave it to the people. Uh, They have the truth of not only what's generally considered the law, the first five books of of the Old Testament, but they have the prophets as well. I mean, they have the writings of David and Solomon. Um, they have been blessed by God, but they will be rendered acceptable or unacceptable based on their works. Verse 16. On that day, when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus um, now, you read these, and if 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 you are one that just uh, You know, it's like somebody going up to a chalkboard and scraping it with their nails. Something doesn't seem right. You're going, wait a minute. Salvation is by grace through faith. You know, we can't, we can't, our works cannot save us, right? Even when you read verse 13, "...for it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God." but the doers of the law who will be justified. Huh? Huh? It's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law. That sounds a lot like salvation by works. So what is Paul saying here? Well, if you'll allow me, I want to I just mention a, some foundational truths that run throughout the book of Romans. And we, we have the um, luxury of having the whole letter. We have the, um, maybe the difficulty is too strong of a word, but we cover a, a passage each time. And so as, just as Paul wrote it and reveals the truth of the gospel, the truth of the good news throughout this letter, we are going to see that indeed salvation is through faith alone. right? I mean, he, it's a major part of this book of, of this book. He, he, he goes to great lengths to say that we are not saved based on our works, that it is only through faith that we come to know Christ. So that is a foundational principle that we need to understand. So it, it, it leads us to the question, well, then what, what, what is Paul meaning here that uh, God is going to render judgment to each one according to their works? Verse 6, verse 13, for it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. And then verse 16, on that day when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Here's, here's, let's bring it all together. It is not just a Romans 2 truth. It is a Romans 2 truth. It is a biblical truth. Real saving faith is revealed by a transformed life. Um, people people have, have a tendency to uh, substitute agreement, general agreement, of the Word of God for acting upon the Word of God. And it, and it, and it, can, it can be confusing. I read a passage of Scripture, and I go, I believe that. And then I seal the envelope and say, that's all I need to do. But Scripture is given to us for our knowledge, yes, but not only for our knowledge. It is given to us for our inner transformation. That when I come to Christ, He gives the Holy Spirit that dwells inside of me for the purpose of changing me. So when I read Scripture, I, intellectually, I mentally appropriate it. This is truth. But then it seeps into the pores of my heart and my soul. And through the power of the Spirit, I live it. And it changes me. And that's what Paul is confronting here in the first century, Jew, but I believe in the 21st century, Christian, non-Jewish Christian, that would say, I've been baptized. I've said a prayer. I ask Christ into my heart. I go to church. I believe the Bible is true. It's the Word of God. But there's never any heart change. There's never... There's never any uh, transformation of your heart. There's there's that, that 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 flows out of a love for God. You know, one of the things, the reality of of, of judgment that we see in verse six and thirteen and. And 16 is something that we just, we tend to dismiss. I mean, when's the last time you gave serious thought to the fact that you're going to stand before the holy, righteous God? And everything you do, every work you've uh, promulgated, every word you've said is going to be exposed. When's the last time you thought of that? When's the last time you, you, you trembled in the face of the living God and with Isaiah's woe is me? Or with Job, how can a man be found right before God? You know, one of the markers of a transformed life is, is a recognition of sin In your life. And as you read and go through this passage of Scripture, you recognize the fact that this Jewish believer that Paul is writing to um, has very little recognition of their own issues, their own sin. They're very good at highlighting and spotting the sin in other people, but they're not very good at recognizing their own sin. That will be exposed. That will be exposed. God does not pronounce people righteous because their doctrine is correct, because their intellectual belief is correct. Only those who do what he requires are declared. Righteous. That's what he says. That's what he says. Hearing what the law requires, hearing it, is merely the first step. And unless my hearing becomes doing, right? James chapter 1, unless my hearing becomes doing, then my, my hearing has no benefit whatsoever. I might look the part but there's no transformation. Real transformation involves hearing yes but that hearing is 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 worked out through a changed life. A changed heart always produces a changed life. Okay. I want us to look at two unsettling flaws of religion that Paul calls out. Um, While he goes back and forth in the opening part of this this passage between Jew and Gentile, uh, starting in verse 17 through the end of the chapter, he really zeroes in on the the Jew. And again, I just caution us, um, he's talking about a religiously committed Jew and uh, I think there's a parallel between a religiously committed Christian today, okay? So here's the, here's the first unsettling flaw that I would call, the, but actually that Paul calls to our attention, and that is the darkness of salvation by self-assurance. Now, these flaws are, come in the forms of rebuke, of, of, of two rebukes. The first one is the darkness of salvation by self-assurance, where he says in verse 17, if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law, that's key. You call yourself a Jew, rely on the law, and boast in God, and know his will, and approve what is excellent, because you are instructed from the law. And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. Now, if you just stop there, you go, what in the world is the problem, Paul? I mean, what a litany of good things that can be produced. Um, But here's the problem. Here's the problem. There wouldn't be one if he stopped in verse 20, but when you pick it right back up, he said in verse 21, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God, By breaking the law, for as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Here are these people. Here are these people. I'm looking out at a a, a big room of pews. And uh, while you're watching this, it very well may be that these pews are going to be full of people. And uh, some, like the... The Jews that Paul confronts here in Romans 2, um, some will be people that are confident in their status, confident in their ability to lead, to teach, to to preach the word. They're confident in their doctrinal understanding of the word. Uh, They feel... Secure in condemning idolatry. And here they are um, condemned by Scripture itself. Why? For not applying what they are teaching, God's Word, to themselves. You know, the Bible talks about the fact uh, that—well, James, again, talks about the fact that teachers will be—teachers of the Word will be judged in um, a—in their own unique way. And when I stand before others and open God's Word and preach it or teach it, uh, you might be a teacher of the Word— there is a responsibility that we bear. I, I would call it um, the pastor's dilemma or, or the teacher's dilemma. And what I mean by that is, uh, how do you take a perfect word, Scripture, and, uh, and teach it when you yourself Are anything but perfect. It's a a perfect word being taught by imperfect people. Uh, And that's what Paul is condemning here. Um, It is this self assurance that, that, that is easy to just kind of rest in because, huh, I'm a Christian. I've walked an aisle, I've prayed a prayer. And, I, and it's my responsibility to make sure that the people that I teach or that I preach to, that they get it and that their life is changed and that their is different. But Paul condemns, condemns us when um, I am leading or I am teaching or I am preaching all the while having a log in my eye. When I'm looking at others and saying, you know, there's a speck here in your corner of your eye and another speck in your other eye over here, you need to clean yourself up, right? When I can't even really see because of the darkness that covers my eyes, it's hypocrisy. It's hypocrisy. And uh, um, it is really a lack of personal experience with God and being honest with the Word of God. When When I profess to minister in the name of Christ, teach in the name of Christ, lead in the name of Christ, um, it should drive me to my knees. There should be a sense of humility that is accompanied by a desire for the Spirit of God alone to lead and guide. There should be a sense of, God, I cannot do this. I cannot do this. Um, if, if, if the people that are watching me today are going to glean anything From your magnificent word in Romans chapter 2, it's going to have to be you that speaks through me, that opens their ears that they would hear, that makes sure that everything is taught appropriately, therefore it is appropriated appropriately. Um, There is just a God reliance that... um, that's not not present in the people that Paul is addressing here the darkness of salvation by self assurance and I don't know you know i, I <clears throat> it could be that you're pretty confident you're pretty self assured you know uh, maybe you come from a Catholic background and you say the rosary and you go to confession and and um you know you 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 do you Dot the I's and cross the T's of Catholicism. Or maybe you're a, you're a Protestant and, um, you know, you, you've been through catechism and you've studied all the right things and you were baptized as a baby. Or maybe you're Baptist and you've been baptized since you prayed that prayer and you're just really confident in who you are. And, um, and out of that confidence, you're, you're really good at spotting sin in other people. Well, Paul would look you in the eye and he would say, really? Really? You have, you have no hesitation or reservation to confront others about stealing and yet you steal, about adultery and yet you commit adultery about robbing temples, and yet you rob temples. Now, I don't know about you. It's been a while since the last time I visited a pagan temple and robbed some of their idols from it. And the same could be said in in the case of Paul and the people he's writing to. There's no known case of Jews ever hitting up the pagan temple in order to steal idols from it. Probably what he's referencing is the the fact that I don't need a pagan idol from a pagan temple to be an idolater. If I care more about my stuff than I do Christ, I'm an idolater. If I care more about my reputation than the reputation of Jesus... I'm an idolater. If I care more about my time, about my money, about my success, about my family, about my hobbies, about my career, than I do Christ, then I am an idolater. I'm an idolater. And I can be a self-confident, a self-assured idolater, but there you go. Okay, I know our time's about up. Let me mention the second flaw of of religion. And that is the tragedy of this notion of of salvation by religious symbolism. And that is caught up in the last part of this passage in verses 25 through 29, where Paul addresses circumcision. Circumcision. And he says in verse 25, for circumcision indeed is of value if they obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. In fact, he goes so far to write in verse 26, if a man who is uncircumcised, that's the Gentile, keeps the precepts of the law, right? That's that person that looks, sees the creator, sees the uh, knows and senses that there is a right and a wrong and, and, and their conduct is changed accordingly, Paul says, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. And it all boils down to verse twenty-eight and twenty-nine. In verse twenty-eight, he 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 gives it. He gives us this truth in the negative. In verse twenty-nine, it's he gives it in the positive. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. Nor is circumcision outward and physical. Now, if you're if you know what circumcision is, you know it. When you think of it, it's physical. Right, It is an outward physical sign, if you're a Jew, of the fact that you are, by heritage, a Jew. Now, a lot of Gentiles are circumcised, but not out of any religious commitment, just because maybe out of health, because that's what your parents did. Stated positively in verse 29, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Now listen, Paul is not redefining what it means to be a Jew here, okay? If we can just keep it on the Jewish level for just a moment. Paul had been a Pharisee. He had studied under one of the most prestigious scholars in all of Judaism, a man by the name of Gamaliel. He is simply stating it has always been a matter of the heart. That's what separated um, ethnic Jews from spiritual Jews in the Old Testament. You often read in the Old Testament about God always having a remnant within the midst of ethnic Judaism. There is this remnant of spiritual Jews. Now, amongst some Jews, this would be somewhat shocking. There were... um, Many, that we have many written statements from Paul's day of rabbinical teaching that circumcision, one says, circumcised men will not descend into hell. Another, circumcision will deliver Israel from hell. And that's, that's a belief. That's a belief. Um, and that's what Paul is confronting. This notion, this notion That um, this false security, that by bearing the symbolism of a Jew, that's all that mattered. For for a Christian, it might be your baptism, right? You think because you're baptized, you're a Christian. Or your church membership, because I'm a member of such and such church, I'm a Christian. But what good does that do you if you do not live out the reality of what the symbol stands for. It would be like a a man wearing a a ring or a woman who is married wearing a a wedding ring. I've committed myself, and I wear the ring, and going back to what he says earlier, and commit adultery. And, And presuming it's better to wear the ring and commit adultery than not wearing the ring, and not committing adultery. That was the religious person's mindset. As long as I look the part, that's what matters. But God says you will be judged. It does matter. It does matter. A genuine faith produces a genuine, lived-out, Life of faith. So let me close real quick. I want to give you uh, um, four applications on how to spot a misplaced faith. And I, I want to encourage you to look inward at these. Um, and, I, and I give you the, the first couple with much appreciation for, for Chuck Swindoll um, and his writings on, on Romans First application, ask, I need to ask myself, am I concerned more with the physical or the spiritual? And here's why this matters. Religion focuses on the outward. It focuses on activities and, and the appearance of religiosity, the appearance of self-sacrifice, where I need to stay busy in order for others to see me as being committed to God, right? It's the motive. It's the motive. So ask yourself, what's my motive? What matters more to me, to be seen outwardly as godly or to be changed inwardly? Here's, here's the second question. Do I focus on things that are secondary or primary? What gets the deeper reaction? Things that in the end don't really matter, rituals uh, of holding to tradition and rules and to the symbol, the symbolism of faith, those things. Do I get more excited about the fact of taking communion or is, does what really thrill me about the truth that is found in communion? Do I, do I get more excited about others seeing me taking the bread and drinking the cup? Or is my ex- excitement more of an inner one that is overwhelmed by the love of God that would sacrifice his son, Jesus, on the cross for me? That's that distinction between secondary and primary. Primary. When people get upset with something that's happened in a service, if we make a change, often um, what they're in essence telling me is I'm more concerned about the look, the religious look about secondary things than I am about the fact that God was declared great today. Third application question. Am I more concerned with getting my way? Or God having his way? Man, am I more concerned about my getting my own way or God having his way? Religion exalts the self. And it exalts the self at all cost, right? I want others to see me. But a changed heart, a transformed heart, a God-honoring heart exalts Christ. At all cost. Remember John the Baptist said, I must decrease, he must increase. Fourth application question, am I more aware of my own status or God's judgments? Am I more aware of my own status, or how others view me, or how God will judge me? How God is judging me right now and how God will judge me on that day, when every secret, every word, every action will be exposed. Okay. Thank you, thank you, thank you for 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 sticking with it and staying with us. Uh, it is a, it is a tremendous truth that God is to be exalted in our lives, but it is to be a pure exaltation. It doesn't mean a perfect one, but it means my life is, is, is served and bent and being changed not by my own efforts, but by His Spirit. It's an interchange that produces an outward change. It's not put on and produced by outward acts. So I could go on and on, as you can see. Let's pray, and I want to pray for you specifically. God, I, I thank you for each one that's watched this, that stayed with us. I pray, Lord, for, uh, for their understanding of grace and its relationship to a grace-filled life. And... Um, and God, may, may my words not have confused, but Lord, may your word change our understanding, our hearts, which will produce a change indeed. We love you. May Jesus Christ be praised. Amen and amen. God bless you. Uh, I look forward to having you uh, join us next time. Let's close out today with with just a, a final time of worship hymn through song. Thanks.